This podcast is brought to you by the Renaissance Podcast Tour of Italy. Have you ever dreamt of traveling to Rome or Florence to see the great works of the Renaissance masters? Well, here's your chance. Join us for a great adventure to Venice, Florence, and Rome as we explore the art and history of Italy. We will depart June 20th, 2017 and spend two nights in Venice, two nights in Florence, and three nights in Rome. We'll visit many of the sites that we've discussed in the podcast, including St. Peter's, the Vatican Museums, and Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling. To sign up, visit the website, therenaissancepodcast.com, and click on the Tour tab for more information. The tour ID is, all caps, DBYRD2017. Welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 20, The Sistine Ceiling. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. Last time, we left off with the early works of Michelangelo, from the Pietà to the David. This time, we'll focus almost exclusively on his monumental work in the Sistine Chapel. With the rise of Giuliano della Rovere to the seat of St. Peter, a new day was dawning for Christendom and for Rome. Taking the name of Julius II, he began a remodeling campaign of Rome transforming it from a backwater to the jewel of the Christian West. Ever ambitious, Julius, living up to his namesake, planned to regain the papal territories lost under previous popes. He would become known as the warrior pope, or the ferocious pope, because of these conquests. Michelangelo was first summoned to Rome in 1505, but it would be months before he was officially commissioned to build a tomb for Pope Julius. A tomb that would rival the emperors of Rome, it would contain a giant sculpture setting of no fewer than 47 large marble figures. And for this, Michelangelo was to receive a salary of 1,200 ducats, with a final payment of 10,000 more. In 1506, Michelangelo would begin transporting wagon loads of Carrera marble to Rome, all of it hand-selected by the artist himself. The tomb was originally to be built near the Colosseum, but Julius decided St. Peter's would be a more fitting location. Soon, however, he would turn his attention from the tomb to the remodeling of the church, and he ultimately decided to demolish the old St. Peter's and erect a new basilica designed by Donato Bramante. Bramante was the head of the non-Florentine contingent of artists in Rome, and when Michelangelo's friend and fellow Florentine, San Gallo, failed to win the commission for St. Peter's, Michelangelo was left without any opportunity to be directly involved with the basilica. The original basilica was built on a marsh, and this led to problems with the foundation. Due to the unstable ground, large cracks would develop in the walls and ceiling over the next several centuries. The same problem would also plague the Sistine Chapel. The new St. Peter's would be the largest construction in Rome since the fall of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. In the process, 
numerous saints and popes would be disinterred, and many others would be churned up in the rubble that would form the new foundations. Michelangelo would continue work on the Pope's tomb in his workshop just outside of St. Peter's, but the Pope's focus on St. Peter's meant that money dried up for the tomb. Michelangelo was not above confronting the Pope, and at a dinner one night, after hearing him tell guests that he was not going to pay another ducat for the tomb, he asked for payment. The Pope dismissed Michelangelo, telling him, Return on Monday. As Michelangelo says in a letter to his father, I returned on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and on Thursday. On Friday, I was turned out, in other words, sent packing. For somewhat of Michelangelo's temperament, this was too much, and he told the Pope's groom that from now on, if he wants me, he can look for me elsewhere. He then instructed that all of his belongings in the studio be sold, and the next day he fled Rome. Julius learned of Michelangelo's flight almost immediately, having spies all over the city, and he sent five horsemen riding after him. Riding through the night, Michelangelo managed to avoid the Pope's men until he crossed Florentine territory. The horsemen caught up with him in a town named Poggibonsi and demanded that he return to Rome. Michelangelo refused and reminded them they were now on Florentine territory and had no authority here. Instead, Michelangelo wrote a letter to Julius, explaining that his work on the tomb was at an end, and therefore he was under no obligation to the pontiff. The Pope would receive the letter during a ceremony dedicating the foundations of the new St. Peter's. The architect of the basilica, Bermonti, the man Michelangelo blamed for his loss of the tomb project, suggested to the Pope that perhaps Michelangelo needed another project. The Painting of the Ceiling in the Sistine Chapel The Sistine Chapel was a personal project of the Pope. It was originally constructed by his uncle, Pope Sixtus IV. The Sistine Chapel acts as the Pope's chapel within the Papal Palace and was built to the dimensions of Solomon's Temple, as Rome was seen as the New Jerusalem. It's most well known as the site of the papal enclaves, where the College of Cardinals will meet to elect a new pope. It's tradition that a new pope is announced with the burning of ballots, sending up white smoke from the chimney. Black smoke made from burning wheat straw indicates that the pope has not yet been selected. Sixtus IV built the chapel in the 1470s and 1480s, and it boasts a number of large frescoes by many of the masters of the early High Renaissance, such as Ghirlandaio, Perugino, and Botticelli. These artists painted a series of frescoes along the walls that depict both the life of Moses and the life of Christ. The ceiling was originally painted blue and decorated with gold stars. However, due to the poor foundations, several cracks developed along the ceiling, causing chunks of the original fresco to fall to the floor. The work of fortifying and stabilizing the foundations of the chapel was undertaken by Giuliano Sangallo, a friend of Michelangelo's. The chapel would eventually be stabilized, but a large white scar would remain in the ceiling. Bermonti suggested to Julius that he rebuild the chapel, but owing to the fact that it was built by his uncle and the expense of St. Peter's, he sought a cheaper and less destructive alternative, a new painting on the ceiling. Not only would this preserve the chapel, but it would provide Julius an opportunity to place his own stamp and own propaganda on one of the most important chapels in all of the Christian world. Bramante seems to be quite the opposite of Michelangelo. 
He was outgoing, friendly, always surrounded by students, and enjoyed the luxuries of living in the court of Pope Julius. Condivi paints Bermonti as Michelangelo's arch-nemesis in Rome. This is also repeated by another Michelangelo biographer and student, Giorgio Vasari. Vasari even relates Michelangelo's accusation that Bermonti wished to have him killed. I think we can be fairly confident this is a fantasy of Michelangelo's. Though there's no love lost between the two, it's highly unlikely that Bermonti would have attempted to have Michelangelo killed. It is possible, however, that Bermonti suggested Michelangelo for the project because he thought he would fail. Being that Michelangelo was a sculptor and not a painter, the other option is Michelangelo would refuse the Pope's request, creating animosity between the two. The art of fresco requires a great deal of technical skill and experience, something that Michelangelo did not have. A single wrong move could jeopardize the entire painting. Painting the ceiling not only would be uncomfortable, it could also have been viewed as an insult. The ceiling of a building is usually considered the least important space to fresco. Often artists would paint it in a single flat color, as we see in the original painting of the ceiling. It does seem that Bermonti thought Michelangelo was not up to the task. In a conversation recorded by a mason working in the chapel, Bermonti informs the Pope of all the failings of Michelangelo, despite his training with Ghirlandaio. He points specifically to the failed fresco of the Battle of Cascina in the Palazzo Sonoria. Rather than wishing to sabotage Michelangelo, it seems that Bermonti is arguing Michelangelo would be of better use as a sculptor and not a painter. Julius failed to listen to Bermonti's advice, and he sought to force Michelangelo to complete the task. The legendary temper of the Pope often governed his actions, and he would not tolerate Michelangelo's disobedience. Julius then sent Sangallo to convince Michelangelo to return, but the artist continually refused, and he even suggested that he complete the tomb in Florence and have the statue shipped to Rome. In Florence, he had a large and spacious studio, and he was free of the meddling of the Pope. When this fails, Julius then writes the Sonoria, trying to convince them to force Michelangelo to return to Rome. Soderini, fearing war with the Pope, pleaded with Michelangelo to return. Still, the artist refused. Shortly after this, Julius shocked the world when he announced he would lead an army into the field against Perugia and Bologna. This war would keep the Pope preoccupied over the next several months, too preoccupied to focus on Michelangelo. Near the end of the summer of 1506, a meeting was arranged between Michelangelo and Julius by their mutual ally, Cardinal Aladosi. Aladosi guaranteed Michelangelo's safety, and in return assured the Pope that the artist wished to be forgiven for his actions. Michelangelo would meet Julius in November of that same year. In Bologna, he would fall to his knees and beg the Pope's forgiveness. And with that, he would be back in Julius's good graces. He attempted to refuse another work by the Pope, a bronze statue of Julius to be placed in Bologna as a sign of his conquest. However, after the incident over the ceiling, Michelangelo did not refuse for long and soon began work on the bronze. Despite being a sculptor, bronze was not his preferred medium. He had very little experience with it. As with fresco, it requires a lot of technical knowledge and experience. I discuss all the details of this in Episode 3 on Brunelleschi and Ghiberti, 
The problem with bronze is that any error or blemish would ruin the casting and the artist would have to start from scratch because all of the details are carved in wax and this wax is lost during the firing process when the mold is made. The bronze would be poured in, filling the space left by the wax. Often, the sculptor only had one chance with the bronze. Otherwise, he'd have to scrap the entire project and start over. Michelangelo took on the project, and for the next year, he would work in a dingy workshop in Bologna to complete the work. Michelangelo hoped that by completing the bronze, he would be granted permission to return to the tomb. In February 1508, the statue was placed above the door of the church, and Michelangelo was allowed to return to Florence. The statue of Julius would eventually be melted down by the French and made into a cannon named the Julia. No sooner had Michelangelo arrived in Florence, he was summoned once again to Rome. The Pope summoned him, however, not to begin work on the tomb, as he hoped, but again to return to the question of the ceiling. This time Michelangelo did not refuse the Pope, and in May of 1508 a contract was drawn up for Michelangelo to complete the ceiling within the Sistine Chapel. He was given an advance of 500 ducats and was to be paid 3,000 ducats for the entire work. Julius's concept was to have 12 apostles with various designs filling in the lunettes and spaces between the windows. Michelangelo began planning the work in May, but it would be several months before he actually began painting. Fresco, which means fresh, is a medium where the artist paints directly into wet plaster. It's a difficult medium and does require extensive planning. First, the artist must sketch out a full-size cartoon or drawing of the image, and then small holes will be pierced along the drawing where charcoal dust could be allowed to fall through onto the plaster, giving the artist a guide to begin his painting. Alternatively, the artist might incise into the plaster by tracing over the drawing, which would leave a little indentation in the plaster for the artist to follow. The frescoist must work quickly. Once the surface is prepared, usually by trained plasterers, the artist only had a day to work each section. This layer is known as the giornata, Italian for day. Once the plaster was dry, the pigment was sealed and chemically bonded within the plaster, creating a tough and durable surface. The drawback to this is that correction is extremely difficult. If a correction is needed, the artist must cut out that section of plaster and apply a new layer. There are two different types of fresco. One is bone fresco, meaning true fresco. The other is secco, where paint is applied over dried plaster using some sort of binder, such as egg tempera or oil. Bone fresco is the more durable style, as the pigment is actually bonded and becomes part of the wall. Secco tends to have problems with mold building up between the paint films, as well as the top layers flaking off the plaster over time. After extensive restoration of the ceiling, we know that Michelangelo preferred bone fresco, probably because of its durability. Before Michelangelo could begin applying fresh plaster to the ceiling, the old plaster had to be removed. This would require building a scaffolding that would reach the top of the ceiling. This same scaffolding would be used to paint the ceiling as well. Due to the fact that the chapel was still being used for mass, it would be impossible to use traditional ground supports for the scaffolding because they would block the aisles of the chapel. Bramante suggested that the scaffolding hang from the ceiling, but this would leave holes in Michelangelo's painting. Michelangelo found this unacceptable and complained to the Pope, who eventually relented. He would hire his friend and architect, Piero Rosselli, 
to create an ingenious scaffolding that would solve all of these problems. The scaffold that Michelangelo and Rosselli came up with used a series of arches that looked like footbridges and would allow the workers to span the entire ceiling while leaving the floor clear for mass. The scaffolding would be anchored into the walls to provide security. It allowed for the removal of the old ceiling as well as painting Michelangelo's design. Despite leaving space for the mass below, conflicts often arose because of the noise of the workers above, and occasionally a bit of paint or plaster would fall on a cardinal or bishop during mass. In order to lay down the giornata, a layer called the intonico would have to be applied and allowed to dry before work could begin. Rosselli and his men would apply this during the spring and allow it to cure over the hot Roman summer. The Antonico would have to be completely dry before Michelangelo could begin his work. Otherwise, he would need to postpone it for another year, since any moisture underneath the giornata could lead to mold. Julius's original design called for 12 apostles, and it appears Michelangelo began working out this scheme. Soon he came to feel that it was not grand enough for the chapel or for his talents. He then began making preparatory drawings for a new design based on the book of Genesis, that would include 343 figures. The artist presented the design to Julius, who initially viewed it as another act of disobedience. Michelangelo's drawings must have had their desired effect, however, because Julius not only agreed to the new idea, he gave Michelangelo full artistic freedom. It is likely that he assigned Cardinal Giles of Viterbo to oversee the theological elements of the work. However, we have very little record of any conflict between the two, so we may assume that Michelangelo's knowledge of the Bible was sufficient enough to avoid any major theological issues. The design of the ceiling contains nine scenes from the book of Genesis in the central panels. These illustrate the creation narrative to the fall of man to the final story of Noah. The entire series is meant to show man's need for salvation, and therefore link it to the images of Christ's life and ministry painted along the walls by Ghirlandaio, Botticelli, and Perugino. Therefore, the entire chapel is tied together pictorially. In the lunettes of the ceiling are the ancestors of Christ. The spandrels contain specific Bible stories such as David and Goliath, and eight more groupings of unidentified figures. And eight more groupings of unidentified figures. Between the spandrels are the Old Testament prophets and pagan sibyls who predicted the coming of Christ. Michelangelo hired a team of fresco painters from Florence to assist him. They were led by his old friend Francesco Granacci, and Granacci would initially act as a manager for Michelangelo, hiring and firing frescoists, ordering pigments, and many of the mundane tasks that would compete for Michelangelo's time. From the outset, Michelangelo brought in some of the best students from Ghirlandaio's workshop. Due to his suspicious nature, however, none of them could rival Michelangelo's creativity, and even Granacci was somewhat of a lackluster artist. What they did bring to the table was their knowledge of fresco, something which Michelangelo did not have. All of these men were initially hired on a short-term basis, with the intent that their contracts would end once Michelangelo was confident in fresco. He could then supervise less skillful assistants, whom he could pay much less. The main jobs of the frescoists was preparing the giornata, mixing pigments, and transferring the drawings. 
This early group would guide Michelangelo in the techniques of fresco. Despite the careful drawings and cartoons that the assistants would place on the wall, there is evidence that Michelangelo would depart from these once he became more confident in fresco, and he would, in fact, draw freehand directly onto the plaster. This is quite a feat in fresco where there's little room for error. Before beginning work in the chapel, Michelangelo wrote to the monastery of Sanguisto Almura in Florence. These monks had a reputation for making fine pigments and even mixing paints for the artists of Florence, like Leonardo. Michelangelo made arrangements with the monastery, and Granacci would handle the delivery. The pigments would usually arrive in a finely ground powder, except for vermilion, a bright red, which was better transported as a clump and then ground as artists needed it. The assistants would then mix these colors with water for Michelangelo's use. No other binder was needed, such as oil, because the plaster would act as the binder, sealing the pigment to the wall. Working in reverse order, Michelangelo started with the panel of Noah and the flood near the entrance. This would provide an inconspicuous place to begin, as Michelangelo built up his confidence in fresco. Almost immediately, Michelangelo ran into trouble. The Antonico was not sufficiently dried and allowed moisture and mold to build between the layers of plaster, distorting his paint colors and leaving a film over the image. There was also moisture seeping into the walls from the foundation. After months of preparation and weeks of work, Michelangelo would be forced to scrape the entire panel down and begin again. The wall and ceiling would be sealed with the help of Sangallo, and Michelangelo was able to begin this time with more success. Working on the ceiling was an uncomfortable position. Though Michelangelo didn't paint on his back, he did paint standing up with his head back looking at the ceiling. This nonetheless made for miserable working conditions. Having more success with Noah and the Flood, he would then move to the scenes of the upper walls in Christ's family. He was able to paint these images much more quickly than Noah and the Flood, partly because he didn't have to crane his neck and could work in a much more comfortable position. Also, the plaster was better prepared, and he was able to finish this section in a matter of days. He would continue in this fashion for much of the project, completing the ceiling panel, and then the corresponding registers and lunettes on the wall. The theme of Jesus' genealogy, which runs along the upper wall, links Jesus, through Joseph and Mary, to the house of David and helps to illustrate that he is fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would come from the house of David. Throughout the piece, there's a series of male figures known as ignudi. This is the Italian for nude. There are 20 male figures that support five of the narrative panels in the ceiling. They are all seated and form a border between the main registers. These ignudi allowed Michelangelo to fully display the muscular nudes he's so known for. They writhe and twist in ways that are reminiscent of his muscular statues. It's believed they represent angels, and that Michelangelo departed from the usual depiction with wings for these figures. Two of the Ignudi, underneath the sacrifice of Noah, are inspired by the Hellenistic statue of Loakawan. These writhing figures were a perfect source of inspiration for Michelangelo, and he was intimately familiar with the work. When it was first discovered, Pope Julius summoned him to determine its authenticity and oversee the excavation. Michelangelo's Ignudi provide us with some of the best examples of his understanding of anatomy. 
Next, we come to the prophets. Michelangelo chose to include seven Old Testament prophets on the ceiling. They are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Zechariah, and Jonah. Zechariah is placed above the door where the Pope is carried in during Palm Sunday. It was Zechariah who prophesied that the king of Israel would enter Jerusalem humble and riding a donkey. On the Sunday before his crucifixion, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem riding a donkey and thus fulfilling the prophecy. This is reenacted when the Pope is brought in on Palm Sunday before Mass. Below Zechariah are the oak leaves of the Rovery clan, the Pope's own coat of arms. Michelangelo would go one step further and use the face of Julius as the model for Zechariah. The symbolism in Michelangelo's decision is clear. He is linking the office of the Pope with Jesus, and thus the Pope is Christ's representative on earth. Above the altar, we see the figure of Jonah, who prefigures Jesus. Jonah was reluctant to follow God's commands, and he was swallowed by a whale. He remained in the belly of the whale for three days, just as Jesus remained in the tomb for three days. Jonah was eventually spewed back onto dry land and then ready to follow God's will. In addition to the prophets, we see some of Michelangelo's most interesting figures, the pagan sibyls, who predicted the birth of Christ. Though not biblical figures, these female prophets were seen as preparing the way for the pagan world to accept Christ just as the Hebrew prophets prepared the Jews. Finding pagan links to Christianity was popular during the Renaissance and late Middle Ages. Virgil quotes the Cumean Sibyl of Rome, who says that a new progeny of heaven would bring a golden age to Rome. Classicists in the Renaissance interpreted this as referring to the coming of Christ. Michelangelo hailed his female Sibyls as powerful and muscular. The Oracle of Delphi and the Libyan Sibyl are great examples of these powerful figures. Despite having feminine facial features, their bodies are actually quite masculine. In fact, it's believed that Michelangelo used his younger male assistants as models for these figures. We do, in fact, have a drawing of the Libyan Sibyl that confirms the model was male. The Cumean Sibyl is interesting because she's portrayed as an old crone. However, she has a very strong muscular torso and broad shoulders, and strong bulging muscles in her legs and arms. It's said that Michelangelo never worked from the female nude, and some have interpreted this as evidence of his homosexuality. Others have suggested that it points in the opposite direction, that the female nude represented temptation. Finally, it could be the chauvinism of the Renaissance that viewed women as inferior in all aspects, and therefore unfit as models for art. This does seem to be in keeping with some of Michelangelo's own writings. There's no real answer to this question, and there's little we can gain from his personal life. From his letters, we can see that Michelangelo had continual problems with his family during the painting of the ceiling. This may actually show up in the ceiling itself. In one of the panels, with the family of Jesus, there's a squabble between siblings. There are some who have speculated that this alludes to his own frustration with his family, and therefore Christ's family was just as argumentative and troublesome as his own. In many of the letters back and forth between Michelangelo and his father, there's talk of his brothers and their failings. His siblings seemed to be little more than trouble, and they were constantly running up debt. These debts Michelangelo would be forced to pay off. Even his father would turn to Michelangelo for money. 
Despite his best efforts to force his brothers into respectable trades, they continued to press him for favors or for positions within the church. This is something he would utterly refuse, but he did send money frequently to his family, often threatening his brothers to either straighten up or he would be forced to come to Florence and deal with them himself. As Michelangelo worked on the ceiling, a new artist arrived on the scene in the Vatican, Raphael Sanzo of Urbino. The young painter was recruited by Bermonti for a project in the Vatican apartments just down the hall. Raphael assembled a team that included none other than Pietro Perugino, his old teacher. Perugino painted the scene of Peter receiving the keys in the Sistine Chapel. This team was in direct competition with Michelangelo, and it infuriated him. Michelangelo already had a strong dislike of Perugino from Florence. If you remember, they had several public altercations within the city, and Raphael's association with both Perugino and Bermonti would mean he would have a strong dislike for the young painter as well. Raphael, not unlike Bermonti, was quite the opposite of Michelangelo. He was outgoing, flamboyant, and the life of the party. Despite their proximity to one another, it seems they rarely ran into each other. Most likely, Raphael and Michelangelo put a good deal of effort in avoiding one another. When they did, they would often trade a few insults as they passed by. Despite this animosity, it does seem that Raphael and Michelangelo developed a grudging respect for one another. Raphael was so impressed with Michelangelo's style that he adapted it for his own work. He even included Michelangelo as the brooding philosopher in his school of Athens. As the Pope grew increasingly frustrated with Michelangelo's slow pace, rumors circulated that Raphael would become Michelangelo's replacement. Condivi relates that the Pope asked Michelangelo, when will he finish the chapel? And Michelangelo responds, when I can. This exchange ends with the Pope threatening to have Michelangelo thrown from the scaffolding due to his insolence. This is repeated many times, with one famous incident where the Pope actually strikes Michelangelo with a stick. According to Vasari, the Pope regretted this outburst and tried to soothe Michelangelo's ego with a gift of 500 ducats. Vasari also writes that Julius would don disguises in order to sneak a look at Michelangelo's work, but that Michelangelo would always see through these and prevent Julius from viewing it. At one point, Michelangelo would even begin throwing things at the disguised Pope until he would reveal himself, at which point Michelangelo feared for his life and escaped through the window. By 1510, the chapel was nearly halfway completed. Michelangelo had just finished painting, Adam and Eve reaching for the forbidden fruit. Here he departs from the typical representation and shows Adam eagerly reaching for the fruit and places Adam and Eve in a sexually compromising position, thus giving the fruit a whole new connotation. Typically, Eve is shown handing the fruit to Adam, which is how it's written in the Bible. But here, Adam reaches for the fruit, making him just as guilty as Eve. Thus, he's saying both men and women are responsible for original sin. In the same cycle, he also completes the expulsion from the garden. This image is lifted directly from Masaccio's painting in the Brancacci Chapel. And rather than being seen as plagiarism, it's seen as a way to honor Masaccio. At this stage, Michelangelo was ordered to drop the canvas that hid the painting from view and remove the scaffolding so that it may be visible to the public. 
Michelangelo disliked showing his work unfinished, but he complied with the Pope's order. We can't be clear about the Pope's motives for revealing the ceiling, but this happened just prior to his leading an army against the Duke of Ferrara. The war started out well for the papal forces, but the distraction of war meant Michelangelo would go unpaid once again. He would receive news that his brother, Bonarotti, was ill, and he would leave Rome for Florence. Upon his brother's recovery, he would soon head out to meet the Pope in Bologna. Here he found the Pope ill, with a fever and seemingly near death. But Julius was a defiant patient, and continued to eat foods banned by the doctors and expel his physicians from his bedside. In all likelihood, all of this saved his life, given the medical treatments of the day, which involved drinking gold or mercury and bleeding. Despite Julius's illness, Michelangelo was able to return to Rome with a partial payment for the ceiling, but he refused to continue working until the remaining 500 ducats were paid. The time away from the ceiling allowed Michelangelo to prepare for the second half, which would focus on the creation narrative. It's here that we see Michelangelo's style change. Except for the prophets and the sibyls, the narrative scenes were comparatively small. Michelangelo decided to boldly change his design and create large figures for Adam and God. Perhaps after seeing the first half of the ceiling from ground level, he was less than satisfied. The second half contains his most iconic images, and these are the most prominent panels above the altar. Just as Michelangelo began reassembling the scaffolding in 1511, the Pope falls ill once more. The death of the Pope would likely mean a French Pope, and Michelangelo's loss of the commission for both the tomb and the ceiling. By October, however, the Pope recovered, Michelangelo was paid, and work began once again. The creation of Adam has become one of Michelangelo's most iconic images. He was able to complete it in roughly 16 days, a blazing pace when compared to the flood panel he began first. This speed was due in large part to the larger figures, as well as the experience gained by Michelangelo. He decided to enlarge all of the central panel figures, while keeping the prophets and the ignudi the same size. He also changed how he portrayed God. In the creation of Eve, God is draped in heavy robes, and he seems earthbound. In the creation of Adam, however, he is ethereal and weightless. He's no longer bound to the earth, and his garments are flowing and billowing like clouds. Adam lies languid, his arms outstretched, waiting for the spark of life from the finger of God. Vasari says of Adam, a figure of such a kind in its beauty, in the attitude and in the outlines, that it appears as if newly fashioned by the first and supreme creator, rather than by the brush and design of mortal man. We don't know what Julius thought of the creation of Adam when he first saw it, but I've always enjoyed the fictitious exchange in the agony and the ecstasy. Here the Pope climbs the scaffolding and asks Michelangelo if this is how he sees God, not vengeful, but loving and benign, and man, not as corrupt, but pure and noble. Michelangelo responds that he wished to paint man before the fall, before sin and death, at the moment when God breathed life into Adam. It may not be accurate, but one would like to think it happened this way, especially if you've ever stood in awe of the beauty of the creation of Adam. One of the interesting things we've discovered with the cleaning of the Sistine ceiling are small statements Michelangelo's included within the work. 
One in particular is the Pudi behind the Kumian Sibyl. He's giving the fig. This is an obscene gesture with the thumb between the index finger and the middle finger. Basically, this is the same as giving the middle finger in America. This image is too small to be seen from below, but with modern photography and recent restoration efforts, it's come to life. The meaning of it is unclear. Is Michelangelo poking fun at the Cumean Sibyl and the clergy of Rome who are obsessed with her prophecies, or is this directed at the Pope? Michelangelo was often at odds with Julius, both personally and politically, and he took a dim view of Julius' military conquest, which killed many Christians who fought against him. Michelangelo was also in constant conflict with Julius over money, so perhaps this was his statement to the Pope. Despite all of this, the two men seem to have eventually grown to respect one another. Quite honestly, they were extremely similar in temperament, and this may be why they had so much conflict. Both men were fiery personalities who were ruled by their passions. By the time the ceiling was finished, Michelangelo seems to have grown to admire some aspects of Julius's personality, and Julius in turn appreciated Michelangelo's genius as an artist. He may not have been Lorenzo de' Medici, but he did lead Rome into a new golden age, and from this point forward, Rome is the center of the Renaissance, and not Florence. Despite the wars and the Pope's ill health, and even a threatened invasion of the Eternal City, the ceiling was finally completed in 1512. Julius hosted a feast on October 31, 1512, the eve of All Saints' Day. After the meal, the guests were entertained until late afternoon, and at sunset everyone was gathered to celebrate Vespers in the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo had only just disassembled the scaffolding a few days prior. All Saints' Eve would be the first opportunity for Julius to show off Michelangelo's work. The pontiff would bless the ceiling. By all accounts, those gathered beneath the ceiling strained their necks to see Michelangelo's marvelous new work. Michelangelo's monumental painting would mark another shift in the history of art. Artists from Raphael to Vasari would be influenced by his work. With the chapel complete, Michelangelo would return to work on Pope Julius's tomb, albeit a much smaller sculpture group. In 1980, a massive restoration began in the Sistine Chapel and would last until 1999. The ceiling had become cloudy with centuries of smoke and soot. What the restorations revealed were brightly painted frescoes that seemed to counter our image of the brown earth-toned figures we've become accustomed to. There were criticisms that the restorers removed too much. They removed the final glazes Michelangelo painted, Secco, but through careful research, many experts believe he did not use Secco at all and relied exclusively on bone fresco. Even in the works of Vasari and Condivi, they seem to stress Michelangelo's preference for bone fresco. The evidence leads us to the conclusion that the Sistine ceiling was in fact brightly colored when it was first viewed in 1512. If you'd like to learn more about the ceiling and Michelangelo, I highly recommend Ross King's book, The Pope's Ceiling, as well as the biographies by Vasari and Condivi. Join me next time as we explore the career and the work of Michelangelo's main rival, Donato Bermonti.